0: Welcome to Follow the Moneyball, a podcast at the intersection of sports and business. Here's your host, David Sloan.
1: I'm David Sloan, and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. My guest today is Brandon Steiner. You probably know him from Steiner Sports and his new company, Collectible Exchange. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you for joining us today.
0: I love that introduction. Thank you. Most people know, you know, Steiner, Steiner Sports. It's so weird to even say it, but now it's collectible exchange, which is like a form of eBay where you can buy and sell. I'm trying to resell all the stuff that I sold the first time. I'm trying to resell it a second time, and then I could be in the salesperson's Hall of Fame. But thanks for having me. It's a beautiful weekend. Football's coming up. I'm all fired up because this time of year, you don't have to talk to your wife. You know, you got the baseball, you got the football, you got the college football, and all of a sudden the hockey creeps in, right? You, you, you keep, Honey, it's a big game. Like, you've been saying that for seven straight days. versus football Thursday now, Friday. So it's unbelievable. So it's, and then you got well, my, the tennis. You know, it's all my, good.
1: My wife is a bit different. I, I hope you can see the title of this book.
0: I love it. Oh, so your wife's all like 10 steps ahead of us. Well, all That's, wives are 10 steps ahead of book,
1: us. That book was written by her father. Wow, Alan Sandler, the Boston kid—that was—that was how he uh, cool. titled himself as an author. Her father was a publisher, so um, she's not the biggest sports fan, but she understands. Um, but, uh, yes, this is a great time of the year for sports fans. You got baseball still going on, heading into the playoffs soon. You got football, you got tennis, like you were saying, college and pro football. So yes, it's a, it's a great time of the year. And one of these days it might get a little cooler in Florida and hopefully the hurricane misses us, uh, here in South Florida. So, um, you, you mentioned your new venture. Um, that's a brilliant idea by the way. And, um, I'd like to go back to the original venture. Um, I know enough about you to know that originally out of college um, and you went to Syracuse University. um, So you're more than familiar with cold weather because Syracuse is the polar ice cap practically. Um, One of my sisters used to live in Manlius. So I, I know a little bit and I had a client uh, you may recall him, uh, his name is John Johnstone. He was with the Mets, the Marlins, and the Giants. He was from Liverpool, both of which are suburbs of Syracuse. But at any rate, so after Syracuse, you went to work for Hyatt Hotels. I believe it would be an interesting subject for my listeners to hear how somebody who started off in the hotel business went into the memorabilia business in sports. How did that happen?
0: I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that, I mean, I, I just think, you know, my, my philosophy was, you know, lately I've coined it as like, wake up broke. But also, you know, wake up and chase after your dreams. Like, I was, I worked in kitchens most of my childhood. I was a cook. I thought I was gonna be a chef when I grew up. And, and I went to college and my mother would not let me quit college to go to the culinary. And I decided I wanted to go into hotel restaurants and learn how to run a hotel. I started working at a hospital you know, hospital management pays big money. I thought that may have been a career that I was going to chase. But so I did about a year at a hospital in Baltimore. But I really wanted to work for Hyatt. The main reason I wanted to work for Hyatt was that at the time, in the early 80s, a great training program. They were growing. I think what's really important when I I talk to younger people, and even older people for that matter, is, you know, it's like rate of growth. You know, to me, I've always been following this one slogan, what's your rate of growth? So I knew when I went to work for Hyatt, I knew I had to go work somewhere that I was gonna have to learn a lot and not get paid a lot. So I knew I knew that. I knew that there wasn't gonna be a, an amazing come out of college and light up the lamp. And Hyatt had a great training program. They were growing. They were really kind of a little bit of a state-of-the-art uh, hotel franchise at the time. And I'm like, you know, something, uh, this, this, it, it took me a while to get this gig. Matter of fact, um, I could not get a job coming out of college, and I had to go all the way to Baltimore work in this hospital. And then eventually they opened up a hotel down there and it was, you know, I always say moments in time, moments of time. It's true in memorabilia, the memories, you know, memorabilia, memories, like moments of time when you make decisions, you know, who you're going to marry, where you are going to go to college? who some of your best friends are like, these are really important decisions. And this was a really important decision. And I know most people are going to talk about memorabilia and all the players I've represented and worked with all, all these years. And, But moments of time that lead up to that, that process, that was one of the better decisions because they beat the hell out of me. You know, that's where I learned how to forecast, how to get a suit on, go to a meeting, run a meeting, um, you know, work with others, collaborate with other managers. A very big hotel is a 400 room hotel. So it was really an amazing, you know, opportunity. Two and a half years, three promotions, really got tremendous training. Uh, Very grateful for that training. And, uh, it really set my career off. You know, I, I think the foundation of your career, kind of like I always say, a big part of who you are is who raised you. You know, a lot of, but, but, you know where you grew up, who raised you. I think a right. big part of your work career is your first couple of jobs and who taught you how to make money.
1: Well, yeah, that was ethics. like your graduate school. That was like no your question. graduate school. I had a buddy of mine. Yeah. I Had a buddy of mine. Pardon me for interrupting, but I had a buddy yeah, of mine good. who uh, I knew when I lived in uh, in Arizona, um, and um, he had gone to work out of college for uh, Gallo Wines. He that was his first job, and he was up at the crack of dawn. And he said he learned the most important thing they taught him was three things: suit up, show up, and shut up. Meaning that you know you get there and you learn.
0: I love that. And, I love and that. After,
1: after he went through that program, the Gallo company, much like Hyatt, is famous for having a great training program. And since he worked for them, he's had lifetime employment. He's been hired by different companies to go up, go and work for them. And he's moved up the ladder in virtually every move he's made. But that foundation, just like you were saying with Hyatt, that's what prepared him for success.
0: I think it's important, and again, that's people get caught up in the results and how much money I can make, and I say get caught up in process you know, and, and get caught up in your potential rate of growth. You know, you're going to work for a company. What's your rate of growth? Not when am I getting my raise, how much stock am I getting, what are you learning, what are you helping to build so you can get the hard lessons because you, when you go into a company that's growing or trying to grow, you're going to have some problems, mistakes, and that's really where the growth comes in. At Hyatt, we we had tremendous success right out of the gate. Ninety two percent occupancy. So we were running for our lives. Yeah, that's unheard of at a hotel like seven days a week. Ninety two percent occupancy. So we were running for our lives. You know, between catering, so I was in everything. I'm in the kitchen. I'm in the coffee shop. In the banquets, I'm making beds, doing it all.
1: And, well, uh, and Baltimore yeah, that, isn't exactly known as a tourist mecca. It's not like you were in a, a city like Las Vegas that's known for millions of people coming and staying at the hotels there or or here in South Florida at South yeah. Beach or something like but, that. But at you know, the that's you pretty know, remarkable. At the
0: you know, the business crowd during the week had right. the tourists on the weekend. And, you know, you had to be ready seven days a week, you know, it's yeah. 530 in the morning to God knows what time at night. But, you know, learning how to service people and learning how to solve problems, um, being a solution-based business person is everything. And, you know, when you get in that kind of environment where you're at 92%, you had better be a problem solver. You had better learn to be good to your employees because you needed every last bit of them to show up to deal with the volume what we were dealing with at that Hyatt Hotel opening in
1: 1981. Right. You mentioned the importance of the, your, your family of origin, the people who raised you, had your family been in the culinary field in the, in the restaurant business? Is that how you wound up uh, behind the counter? Or was that just something you were drawn to?
0: It was something I was drawn to. Um, you know, I, I started cooking because, you know, my, my single mom, I had to cook for the family. Then I just figured that was an easy way to make money. I'm not going to lie. And then I kind of started enjoying it. I always tell uh-huh. you, know, just be curious, try things, is kind of my thing. I'm curious. I try things. I'm enthusiastic about it. And I kind of see where it goes. When I look at my resume as a kid, I mean, I'm talking before I even went to college, you needed two pages for my resume. I didn't got to college yet. I had a two page resume with things I tried, wow. jobs wow. I had done, but the food thing felt good for me. I, I enjoyed it. It was hard work, but I was learning and it was Never also went hungry. hungry. I have a little creative side to me, you know, where uh-huh. the baking and and now you see it in the collectible business that I've created over the years, right. there's a creative side to me. I've created a lot of cool products. And back when I was in the kitchen, I'd do a lot of cool things with a lot of cookies, baking, you know, cakes, all kinds of stuff.
1: Well, I can certainly testify as to the collectible business because I've seen things that other people would try and sell and and best way to characterize it, it would be pretty vanilla. But the way that you positioned it or the way that you marketed it was very, very innovative. And I would say an awful lot of what you do, other people attempted to copy and most of them failed. So the fact that you not only innovated it, but succeeded at innovating it, Um, speaks volumes for for you and your creativity and the follow-through and the follow-through. It's one thing to have a great idea, but great ideas are a dime a dozen if they're not executed flawlessly. And you have done a tremendous job of that.
0: I always say it's not what you expect, it's what you inspect and the fortunes in the follow-up. You know, to me, execution beats strategy for breakfast. I mean, you know, you get these people that are sitting around a table and they're strategizing, they have the flow charts, and all this bullshit. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, there are times when you need to be very accountable. There are times when you do have to kind of put a spreadsheet together and, and realize you know, what you're going to spend, what you're going to make. But you got to be doubly down on strategy, triply down on execution. Like you have to be an executor if you're going to be successful in business. And you can't be an ATNA. I always get around with my kids. ATNA is all talk, no action. I'm like, you just can't be. You mm-hmm. know, you cannot be you know, all talking about, and I just run to be. oh, yeah, i got to do that, i am got to do this. I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing? You know, you know, you may have to wake up at 5 in the morning to do it. Oh, wow, well, I don't know. Okay. No. I've been up since 4.30 this morning. I had a busy day, and I know I had this pod to do with you, so I had to work a lot of stuff. And, hey, got to get up, got to get going, and uh, you got to execute. You can't let people down. And when you follow up and you do what you say, you'll be surprised. You don't even have to be that smart. Just follow up and do what you say.
1: Well, let me ask you about another component in regard to to I think business success is risk tolerance. Uh, there are there are so many again, I'm looking at it from the outside, but looking at your CV, from the outside, there are so many inflection points in your career where you were at an intersection and you could turn right or you could turn left. And the right turn may have been the safer way to go. And obviously you looked at it and said, yeah, maybe that's the right, the the safer way to go. But I really believe in this left turn way. And you decided to take the risk. So, so obviously you've had the I don't know any other way to put it. You've had the balls to to take those risks. Now we're into
0: my second book, You Gotta Have Balls, Everything My Mother Taught Me, and I Made a Fortune. But, you know, people always say, don't be afraid to fail. That's bullshit. I'm sorry. Like, who's not afraid to fail? Don't be afraid to try. That's the key. And, you know, like, listen, I I, I have had so many different opportunities that I've done really well, and I've done, had some opportunities I've really screwed up and struck out. But I think what, what's really important lesson, because a lot of people talk about failing and how important it is. And what I say it's so, so important to try, but also remember when you succeed more, and this is what I really didn't see coming, and it almost knocked me out, is that as I started getting on a roll, because, yeah, I had balls and I was trying things, and a lot of it was working. But you have to admit that losing is not the opposite of winning. It's a part of winning. So as you win more, you're going to lose more. If you're playing 10 games, you know, you're not going to go 10 and 0. Maybe you lose a couple. But you play 20, now you're losing four or five games. You play 30, you're losing maybe seven or eight. So as your winning progresses, you're losing progresses. As your winning gets bigger, your losing potential gets bigger. And every now and then you're going to take that big left hook, that big loss you didn't see coming. Maybe your idea sucked. Maybe I wasn't thinking straight. Maybe I just didn't have my head screwed on right. Maybe whatever. But at the end of the day, As I was playing bigger and winning bigger, I didn't expect the losing bigger. I always keep thinking I was going to pitch a shutout. Who could beat Uh me? I can't lose. And then a couple left hooks found myself on the ground. And so I tell people, like when you win big, be prepared to have some 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 bigger losses. And if you withstand those hooks and stand up, you'd be surprised how far you can go. Because the losing does help you. In the growth, again, rate of growth is everything. You know, I always say, be a rose. Rate of self-efficiency, rose. Be a rose. You know, rate of growth. If you look at your rate of growth, and you think about, right, am I growing? First of all, you're going to be happier, and and usually you're on the right track.
1: Well, and you're talking about personal growth as opposed to you're moving up, you're getting a bigger career title or whatever the case may be, as opposed to, you know, like you're saying, uh, you, you went from X salary to Y salary, but you may not have grown as a person. You may not have, have accumulated any knowledge, experience, what have you that adds to your resume that ultimately will lead to your greatest success. Um, my son, for an example, my son, um, when he was a, a kid um, uh, playing baseball, he started off as a very good infielder. And then one day his team was getting blown out and his coach asked him if he wanted to pitch and he went out there and he was, he became very good at it. And it's like, where did I go wrong? I I I, I, I played every position on the field except for pitcher. So I couldn't help him with that. And uh, eventually it got to the point where, as you know, as a pitcher, you're not going to throw, throw a shutout every time. And when he was got to high school, he played on a very good team. They were number four team in the state. They had a bunch of guys that went to college, a couple that played bro, pro ball, one that played in the big leagues. But yet he still had games where he would go out there and he would get beat. And I told him time after time, you're going to lose games. But when you lose the game, don't lose the lesson from losing the game. Because you can can always learn something. I shouldn't have thrown that pitch in that position. I shouldn't have thrown that pitch to that guy. I shouldn't have walked the first batter so that I had to pitch from a stretch to the team's best hitter coming up next. Those are the type of lessons that you learn from a loss. So while a loss may be a loss, it doesn't have to be a total loss if you learn the lesson from the loss.
0: Yeah, I agree with you
1: because you are going to you are going to encounter losses you are going to take that left hook in the ribs where it just knocks the wind out of you and at that point you've got two choices you can take a knee or you can come back and fight harder and and if you take a knee you're going to find yourself taking more shots to the ribs and taking more losses as opposed to wins so okay getting back to to the Hyatt so Hyatt was your foundation and you learned everything from making beds to to cooking biscuits and then um you you rose to a certain point with the Hyatt organization and then all of a sudden your CV takes a uh, a turn and you're in the memorabilia business so how did that how did that segue occur where you went from the hotel business to the memorabilia business? Yeah,
0: I, 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 I jump over through Hard Rock, and that's kind of where I got the memorabilia thing. I saw how popular it was. Wow. I opened up the first Hard Rock in New York. Okay, It was a really hot restaurant, maybe one of the hottest openings I've ever seen. And it was just in the right place at the right time. And uh, the assistant general manager, I probably could have had a career with Hard Rock. Because shortly after I left, and believe me, I believe I went on a nervous breakdown. That that's when they blew up, got sold, opened up hotels. So I was there right at the beginning, and and Isaac Tiger did an amazing job with uh, Peter Morton in, in creating that concept that is still alive and rock and rolling today. You know, when I started Steiner, really I was marketing players, which I'm still doing to this day. And you know, I just needed something to make some extra revenue on as I'm booking players. So,
1: pardon me a second. And, uh, Yep. Nicole, Nicole just showed me this.
0: Yeah, the Hard Rock Express card. That's the gold card that we used to give out at the beginning, and that's She's 1991. The, the 81. I was there for the grand opening in New York. Oh yes, yeah. so you are there like, right at the that beginning, that's 81. Yep. Yeah, I, I couldn't see that 81. Is, so you don't remember how big? So this, how big? Yeah, uh, the, how big was that opening? It was huge with the car sticking out of the awning on the God front, luck, right yes. on Fifty Seventh Street. Right, I was working in New York. at This does say ninety one, actually, but I was there at the opening.
1: Um yeah. Yeah. Which, which station were you on the, at that uh, time? I was
0: at WPLJ in New York. Are oh, you at Terry Angelo at, at, in the marketing and promotion department? And yeah. uh, Jim Kerr. We I, did worked, live five the White was, Rock, right? I was Jim Kerr's producer. I produced Jim Kerr in the morning crew yeah. from eighty five to eighty seven. And so I was Terry Angela with Howard very the well. cab driver. Remember yep. Howard back then, and Howard and, um, and Shelley, and yeah. yeah. So we right. to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that was amazing. But, that shit's never going to be duplicated. With, uh, you know, with had a brand John. We was walking on John at the table, and we're getting. I mean, it was just crazy. Every day yeah. was crazy. But you know what was crazier is that I was smart enough moments of time, like when I went to the Hard Rock. I knew that I had operational experience to help the Hard Rock, and I was kind of a little bit of a you know, kind of a solid post in there because there's so much craziness. But I knew I didn't make the hard rock into the hard rock. As much of a marketing promotional guy that i like to think I was pretty good at, I knew there was something really special going on there. And I I went into education mode. I, I got to figure out why the hell all these people are waiting online. 200 people online every night from two in the afternoon to two in the morning. I mean, the place was jam-packed. Like, why? What's so cool about this place? And I really stopped. Even though I was a young kid, I didn't get caught up in the hype. I got caught in the undermath of what was the process that made this thing so great, because I need to steal it, because I know I'm gonna need it for later on in my life. And that's what really enabled me to get right into the memorabilia in the sports marketing business, which I was marketing celebrities. And back in the late 80s, when I started signing sports marketing, and I still, you know, at sign agency, we still market players. I had that feel for what it took to create a crowd. I had the feel for what would get people excited and I jumped right into it. Even though it wasn't that popular thing to book players, I saw the vision of it, and I was booking hundreds of player appearances a year. Before, everybody, now it's a very popular and a big thing. Yeah. But back at the beginning, no one was doing that.
1: So were you involved in acquiring the, the, you know, the Jimi Hendrix's guitar, Peter Frampton's no. jacket? No, you weren't? Not at were all,
0: the guy. Do you remember Don Bernstein? Of course. Okay, so he died. So Don Bernstein was the one who did all the acquisitions, right? He died. Yeah, I was not involved with that ago. at all. As a matter of fact, yeah. I had no idea about memorabilia. One of my, the guy who actually was a front desk employee for me ended up running the memorabilia, Steve Ruthier, uh, a few years later. But I was really a big restaurant manager. Hyatt had taught me how to run and manage right. big restaurants. Right. And I, and Hard Rock had one of the first computer systems in it, that Hyatt was the first. Multi unit operation that used this computer system, and I've been trained very well on. And that's really what got me the freaking job, which is outrageous. But they didn't know how to work the damn computer. And Seriously. I did. And I'm not a computer guy still to this day, but I knew how to work that the NCR 2160. You got to read the You Gotta Have Balls book. And anybody listening, just go to my website, collectibleexchange.com. You get the book free. It, the, you Gotta Have Balls is my most popular book of the three, but it explains this whole sequence of stories and what happened. And it's honestly just completely outrageous how everything kind of fit into everything and how everything worked out for me. There were some hardships along the way, too, which is why I wrote the third book, But um, which I, you know, I got into more detail about the ups and downs of, of how things went. But for the most part, it was an epic run. And uh, you know, I thank God and my family and, and everything for the run that I've had, just because it is somewhat epic. I don't begrudge myself of it because I work really hard. I think you talk to anybody that ever worked with me Nobody ever outworked me and outsmarted me. I mean, I, I was there early, stayed late. And uh, I always tell people, it's like, you know, if if you're leaving before your boss leaves, like, you're not serious about your career. You just have a job. And, you know, I always got there before my boss got there. And, and nobody outworked me. It's, it's not going to happen.
1: Well, I think you're being much too modest, and and I understand that. But uh, somewhat epic is a is, uh, uh, tremendous understatement in regard to to what you have done in terms of making the memorabilia business what it is today. I think that you are, without a doubt, the cornerstone, if you will, figure in that. There were card shows before Steiner Sports. There were appearances before Steiner Sports. There were personal signing sessions before Steiner Sports. Nobody took all of that and incorporated it into a standalone packaged company that did everything involved in that from acquiring the items, acquiring the talent, marketing the items and the talent, and did it all and did it as well as you did. So I don't think there's anybody else out there that can can make the claim to having had the effect on the memorabilia business that you had, and I'm not saying this just to blow smoke up your ass. Well, thank you for
0: saying that, I appreciate it, it. and uh, I got a lot of help along the way, but thank you. It's been a great, fun run. And listen, I always tell people, be an improver, not an inventor. The people that have been most successful, are people that didn't actually initiate something, but they took a good idea and made it a lot better. And you go back in time and look at almost every great invention we've ever had, and, and it's almost true every time, twice on Sunday.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy who invented the telephone was not Alexander Graham Bell. It was a guy whose name, who's anonymous, basically, a guy who was an immigrant from Italy, and he filed suit against Alexander Graham Bell for stealing his idea. The problem was he went into court. He didn't speak English, so he couldn't speak well in court, and as a result of that, lost the case to Alexander Graham Bell, who effectively stole his invention. Same thing with Nikola Tesla, and and on and on and on and on. So you're 100% right in terms of the people who have become most successful with a particular idea or item are the people who took that idea that came about by someone else's invention, brainpower, whatever you want to call it, and figured out the way to maximize the exposure, the marketing, the commercialization of that product or idea, and that's how they made their fortune. And, and you're 100% right when you say that. 100% right, no question about it. So, um, so now you're, you're with the hard rock, you get exposure to that side of the business. So you've got, again, an inflection point. You, you've got a fork in the road. You've been in the restaurant business, you know, the hotel business by this point inside and now, and now you've learned all this other stuff about the, the various memorabilia that was in the hard rock. And what was it that intrigued you about that? Was it the, the fan aspect of it? You were a fan of that, or was it the potential to, to make a lot of money?
0: No, what happened was I, I met one of the limited partners of the Yankees, Billy Rose, who had a sports marketing, right. uh, a sports bar. You know, Back in 1984, not many sports bars existed. I think it was like Rusty's. It was the ultimate sports bar in Chicago, and Bobby Valentine's in, in Connecticut. And He had an idea to do something on a much larger level with a screen, with a Cedar's Palace scoreboard where the gambling people can come in and watch the scores, because back then you had to call a sports phone just to get a score, not like it is today. So you know, to watch multiple games at one time and see all the scores and all that was, was a complete, complete crazy idea. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, people, I remember Keith Hernandez walking in, because I've met a lot of athletes at the hard rock and he said, do you have a drug problem? Is everything okay? Like, why would you leave the hard rock and come here? Like who's going to come and watch a game and eat? <laughs> That's how you know, so that was kind of what really got me into the next level. Um, you know, the sporting club is where I met a lot of athletes. They'd come in and watch the games. We had the only satellite dish in New York. Um, so you, if you wanted to watch away games, you know, cable was very limited back then. Not like right. it is now. You watch any game, every game. You had yeah. to wait for the game of the week. And, you know, if not, you had to get this big satellite dish, which took you like 15 minutes to find the game on the bird. you know? So, it, yeah. You know, I realized then also like the sports thing, you know, at the time, the sports marketing thing was really minimal. Really. When you think about it, it was just a little bit of tennis and golf and, and some events, but not much. And I saw this sports thing's a really big deal. I think this restaurant thing's not going to suit my life choice because I knew I was a hard worker. I know where we be working seven days a week, every weekend, Saturday nights. So I took a chance, you know, and, and again, moments of time, um, I left the restaurant business, probably because I couldn't raise enough money to open up my own restaurant that I wanted to open up. And I'd probably gone as far as I could in, in what the talent I had. I was not a fine dining restaurant guy. I was a theme restaurant guy. I, I ran off really about high-level themes. And as, as far as the, you know, the hard rock was, was a great experience too. But I was kind of feeling like, I, 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 I don't know, sometimes you just have a voice that says time to move on, time to try something else. And um, I do not want to go the distance on the restaurant hotel thing.
1: So let me ask you this at that time, because obviously that had to be just a huge risk. You had a foundation from the high. You had obviously a solid job with the hard rock. You were married by then. You had, I wasn't feeling the
0: risk. You know, my wife was doing very well. She's a really incredibly bright woman. I would have never built Steiner into what I did without her help. But You know, I wasn't feeling the risk. My wife was like, look, if you're ever going to do this, do this now. Wow. I always always felt since I'm a kid that I was going to have my own businesses. So I was confident. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I wasn't sure it was going, which was a little weird. I only had $4,000 to start the business. So that was like weird. But, you know, I'm a figure it out guy. Like I I knew I'd figure something out, but it definitely didn't happen overnight. I mean, I definitely struggled for a good three or four years to to really try to find reoccurring revenue and find a niche. I always say riches are in the niches. And it was, it was a little bit of a rough start. You know, I did a bunch of different things, not to bore people with it, but I was all over the place. I think that you go into a business with an idea, but you gotta have your head on a swivel. You gotta be, I always say survival of the flexible, not survival of the fittest. You gotta be flexible. And also, you know, you gotta you got to constantly be growing and, and looking at different opportunities who you can team up with. The one thing that was really smart that I did was I was always careful about the P word, who I was partnering with. So even back then, I was partnered with Mickey Mantles. You know, I had Phil Rizzuto. I had very smart, high-level, great image boosters, people that can help increase the roof over my head. So every partnership I ever did, always made me better. And it was value add. And that's why I kept growing. And I was very particular, I never did money grabs when it came to partnerships. If it was somebody that was gonna help me grow or somebody was gonna challenge me, someone's gonna push me. That was a partnership I was interested in. I wasn't gonna do something just for the sake of it, just because so I could make a few bucks. And I still live by that very stringently to this day. I mean, more people came to me with NFT ideas and this and that. No, I don't care if I can make a bunch of money. These. I have a customer base and I like to think a fan base that trust me when I put together products and and, and things to invest in or buy, I'm not going to just get people just buying a bunch of crap so I can make some money and all those monkeys and animals that people are buying NFTs. And I've had people come to me with all these different schemes as I've become a little more successful. And I never compromise those, those kinds of things because you can only build your reputation and get trust with people once. So that's what kind of been my mantra. You know, the athlete marketing thing took me only so far. I think I probably could have stayed with it, to be honest with you. I was, But, you know, back in the early 90s, players weren't making what they're making today. So I figured, let me try this memorabilia thing. You know, I mean, as an addition. I was never thinking it was going to be a brand. I was just thinking, you book a player with me, I bring them to a speaking engagement or a trade show, and then I bring some memorabilia along for people to win as a prize. And I did a really good job at it. I was really creative with it. And it was really a B2B play. It was like, I was selling stuff like to companies. I was selling stuff to some sporting goods stores. I wasn't thinking it was going to be a brand that one day people would actually think anything of. And I started the business with 4,000 bucks. And then in 95, 96, when I signed Rizzuto and Messier to the first collectible deals, I think I put another $10,000 in. And that's how I got started to build a $50 million business. So,
1: you know, it was a little, I this. that's when the shit
0: got, that's when, that's when, that's when, you know, the wheels started getting wobbling and, you know, when you're in the car driving really fast and the car starts shaking, you know, that's when you get nervous, the risk. Like, you know, you start, you know, because you could grow out of business really quickly. You know, if business was growing, I didn't have a lot of cash flow. I had to be really smart about what I was doing, what I was saying yes to, what I was saying no to. I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake. Is like, it's not only really coming up with a good idea. And when you're executing it, if you grow too fast, you don't have the cash flow or the infrastructure to, to uphold that growth. You can fail with a great idea, and yeah. it's just a stupid class I took in Syracuse that taught me that. Where it was an operations and a consulting uh, class, and I saw a bunch of companies that had great, great ideas, and because of cash flow problems, they, could have, they had too much money on the street. They went out of business. So it really stuck to me. Like, don't grow too fast. Like, make sure you make sure you know you, you keep an eye on the cash flow because you're making money and go out of business. That was a great learning lesson, yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, and you were talking about partnering with the right people. I'm sure you appreciate the fact that your most important partner was your wife. Because just as an example, my ex-wife, one of the reasons that she's my ex-wife, total pain in the ass when it came to things like that. In 94, when baseball was on strike for 100 days, she was just absolutely apoplectic. I mean, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? How are we going to buy food? What's going to happen with the house? So after, after listening to this chirping for God knows how long, I got a printout of my bank account statement. And all I did was I went like this. I said, we're okay. And that was what it took to shut her up finally. Now, Nicole, completely different situation. Having somebody that's a supportive partner like that in your life means more than anything any amount of money that someone else could have brought to you or any other superstar player that you could have signed or what have you. Cause at the end of the day, when you're working till two, three o'clock in the morning and then you go home, that's when all the dark thoughts start coming in. That's when you start doubting yourself. And that's when somebody who's supportive like that and is telling you, listen, you're doing what you need to do, what you're great at. And I know you're going to be a success. That's when that really hits home.
0: I had a dollar for every time I went home and told my wife, I think we're done. I don't think we're going to make it. I would have made millions of dollars just from that alone. So, yeah, I mean, it's really important that the the people around you uh, are supportive. They're honest. You know, I always felt like my wife was my accountability police. She didn't sugarcoat it, as my mother never did. My mother was never a soft shoulder to cry on. Told me the truth. Told me to suck it up, get back out there. Went... Sometimes I thought that she was going to say, oh, poor you, oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's like, no, you need to get better. You need to grow a little bit. You need to grow up a little bit. You, I, don't, I don't know if you behave properly there. You need to work on your speech. You need to work on So, you know, my mother was tough. She was tough in that regard, but she's a big fan of mine. And I think, you know, being a fan of your children and of your spouse sometimes yeah. is, is it's, you can't put a price
1: tag on it. Oh, it's huge. Was your mom first generation American, second generation? Yeah,
0: no, Born in the USA, first generation American and definitely a woman ahead of her time. You know, she owned businesses and she was a serial entrepreneur, which is where I get it from. You know, the fearless, you got to have balls was her favorite line. And that's why I named the book after her and everything I learned from her is in that book. But, you know, she was like a fearless, be relentless, be fearless and don't stop at success, you know. Go all the way. Why why hold back? Put it out there. Do it the right way. You know, and, well, she was and she very big on service. She was very big on taking care of people and being a solution-based business
1: person. Yeah. Well, and she probably got that from, from her family because there were so many immigrant families that, that came over here yeah. and, and that sort of drive and thirst to learn and experience things in this country came from from that generation my grandfather came here in 1905 from belarus brought my father over here in 1907 from belarus and i i heard those stories from them i learned those lessons from them and i'd be surprised if a situation wasn't very similar with you i've passed those lessons down to my sons and my son and daughter and uh i i'm sure that's where you initially picked it up as well so getting back to to Okay. Hard rock. And then you went through, a, a, as you mentioned, a whole bunch of other areas that you worked in. And then now finally, through these experiences of taking athletes to different uh, uh, events, um, you developed the relationships with athletes. And what, what was the inflection point that finally made you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this And I'm going to do this alone and I'm going to do this full time as hard as I can in, in that particular area, in the memorabilia business.
0: Uh, You know, we were, we were doing a lot of athlete appearances. We're doing a lot of marketing, which I still do this day. And we always did that throughout. That was what got the athletes to buy into what I was selling because a lot of them really didn't love the memorabilia. didn't love signing, but I was making them money with corporate appearances and PR campaigns and advertisement stuff. So, when I sold my company as big advertising conglomerate, a lot more corporate opportunities came up, and athletes to kind of make it, you know, I, I, you know, like I was making them a lot of money doing that. I'm like, listen, we need to do the memorabilia too, and they kind of went along with that too, so that helped. Yeah, I, I think value, you know, what people don't realize if you want to do business with people, particularly people that are hard to get to. You got to come up with value. You know, you got to add value. That that that's what that's what entices people is value, especially people that are wealthy and successful because they didn't become wealthy and successful by accident. They came. They they see value. They know value when they see it. So you know, and value is what you could do for someone that they can't do for themselves. So you know, when I saw athletes and different things starting to evolve, I, I always hit them up with value propositions, things that I could do for them that I knew they either couldn't do for themselves or didn't want to do for themselves. And that 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 got that got their attention. That would they were very grateful for that. In exchange for that, they allowed me to make money with them. I know that sounds kind of weird, but you know, if I go to you and say, "Let me help you with this thing that's really important to you," and by the way, while I'm doing that, is it okay if I make some money with you? I mean, most of them said, "Yeah." I mean, that kind of makes sense. So, you know, I, I tell people all the time is like, lead with love and value, prob not what, what you can get, but what you can give.
1: Well, and you mentioned something else that I think was a a, a, a major, major uh, advantage for you. As you've mentioned, back when you first started, ball players weren't making the kind of money that they are now. That's true. So that yeah, true. coming to somebody and, and saying, Look, I can put twenty five thousand dollars in your pocket and here's what you have to do. It will Oh, that's it slow, will be-
0: slow down there, young man. Hold up. That's true. At the beginning, when I got started, that's true. A lot of people, yeah, would come to me, but that was not when we were making twenty five grand. Like Michael Jordan wasn't making twenty five grand. All right, that was, and the reason why I got into the collectible thing is because most of the fees were $2,500. twenty mm-hmm. five hundred, five grand. You booked Magic Johnson for five thousand dollars. Now, well, you're
1: talking the eighties. We're talking,
0: talking in the, the... early nineties, even oh, okay. it didn't start till the mid to late nineties when Jordan and a whole bunch of things started erupting with it, with the, you know, the whole transformation with webs and, 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 and all that stuff. But so I had to do a hell of a lot of appearance in 1991, 92, I probably did almost 2000 appearances over a year and a half period and, and I almost went out of business. There's no money. So, but you know, I never really saw that these things were going to go for 50, a hundred grand. You had, i book a player for a hundred grand. I don't even think twice about it. And then, you know, back in the nineties, be that would be hiring somebody for the year. So, you know, look, I mean, um, I think as I started making guys money in the early 2000s and it was pretty good money, they allowed me to make money with them on this collectible thing. And they were kind of a little lean on what they would do for me. And that that trust and that confidence that they had in me really enabled me to go build this thing up. It was pretty cool.
1: Okay, well, now I get to brag a little bit, okay? 1992, I approached the player um, who I know you heard of, Carlos Delgado. And I asked him, I said, uh, can we talk? I'd like to represent you. And he said, okay. And I said, do you have an agent? And he said, no. He said, I was represented last year by Scott Boris, but I never re-signed with him because I always ask players that. I never like clients being stolen from me. So I did not want to steal players from other agents. So I said, here's what I can do. And if you give me a chance, I promise I will put money in your pocket. And he said, okay, I will give you that chance. Well, this, you sell these on your website. This is a deal that I did for him in 1992 with a company at that time called Anco. He got 25 grand for this in 1992. He was in double A the next year. So this was off a year in single A where he was an all-star in the Florida State League. I wasn't even in the majors yet when I got him 25 grand for this.
0: That's pretty damn good.
1: I was a damn good agent, Brandon. I was a damn good agent. You had a
0: great run. You know, the business is, you know, the listen, it's not easy when you have those successes. A lot of people think because it looks easy, but yeah. it ain't easy.
1: Well, look, I wish I could have gotten a royalty for, uh, set up a royalty agreement for negotiating the first contract that made it possible for a player to opt out of his contract. Because now every Tom, Dick, and Harry ball player is getting contracts with opt outs in it. I That's did the okay. first one. I did That's the first best. one. So, you know, uh, I was a good agent. Uh, there were other people who were better at recruiting, but there was no one who was ever any better at negotiating than me. but no this isn't about me. this is about you so no so so the 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 memorabilia thing the the innovation that I think really stood out to me looking at your business from the outside from representing players who were wanting to get personal appearances and card deals and things like that was you're combining all of those elements. You had people that were going to New York and sitting at a table at a venue or an event, and they were contracted to sign X number of things. And in return for that, they were being paid Y amount of dollars per item. There were not other people doing that. The other people that were doing it, it was like, pops would come to a guy and say, We want to sign you to a card deal. And as part of that card deal, you're going to sign 500 cards and we'll pay you for that card deal X. But that was it. That was it. You took that same stuff and had those players sign those cards for three, four, five, ten times what they were paid to sign the cards originally with Tops, And that to me was really the first innovation that I became aware of that you did. And then there were other, I will call them promoters, not all of them particularly legitimate, but they were there who tried to copy what you did. And every now and then I would be contacted by somebody who would say, "Um, okay, you know, uh, I'm in San Francisco and your guy Johnstone's having a hell of a year setting up Robbie Ninn. I'd like to do an appearance with him. And, you know, here's what we're willing to offer. Well, what they were trying to do was effectively copy the cookie cutter, let's call it, that you had created. So what was it that crystallized that idea of putting all of that together and marketing it in the way that you did? Because you could have done those as individual components and profited. But I think you probably profited significantly more by packaging it. Am I wrong?
0: To me, to me, I was thinking about at the the time, even though, you know, I was thinking about paying the player a little more than what they had gotten. And I was really just trying to get them bought in to help me build a brand. Like I I didn't think the business was going to go anywhere unless it was a brand that people can look up to. Yeah.
1: Hold on. Bought into Brandon Steiner as opposed to bought into the idea of the member of the business.
0: I, I felt there needed to be some leadership in the business You know, there had gone up in a whole bunch of fraudulent autographs and I felt like there needed to be a place where people can look to where the real thing was happening. So we, there was never a left lane and a right lane. It was one lane the right way. That's it. There was no other lane. And, and what was great is, is as I figured out a way to create that lane, I didn't mind paying the players a little bit more. I would ask them to do a little bit more, but outside Mm -hmm. the box to -hmm. promote the brand, promote, they were doing what they were doing with me. So to convince people that what we were doing was real. Right. you know if you know the, the one thing I probably have you know I, even after leaving Steiner and and now starting this new thing is trust like I don't know there are companies that spend millions and billions of dollars to get them to trust you I don't know do I trust Delta Airlines I kind of do I trust some of these airlines no yeah like you know but people I work ask people trust me like they you know because again there's this one highway one lane the right way so You know, I I put a lot of money in a lot of players' pockets, and what ended up happening is the players were able to kind of get, you know, the players were endorsing me. They were buying into what I was selling. They were buying into the program, and that really weighed heavily with a lot of the fans and customers' minds.
1: Well, because they knew that a show that was put on by Steiner Sports was going to be a good show. And by building their brand, they were also building your brand, because it was always billed as Tino Martinez and Steiner Sports. Well, the, one thing, I,
0: the one thing I would say is, is this. I, I, first of all, I was always transparent. I did a lot of media, and I was always taking the time to explain to people how it worked, what we were doing. And a lot of people are not transparent about their business practices. I was, and I think that was really, really important. I think it was effective. Um, I think that I always put the fan first, so my goal always was, how am I going to get the fan closer to these players? How do I get the fan closer to the game? And, and you know, an I've I made, I made a lot of dreams come true. You know, I, I yeah. convinced players to do stuff that they never, ever said they would do, like the, right. the clinics, the clinics, um, you know, that kind of stuff.
1: Well, and don't just sit at a table with your head down signing stuff, yeah. handing it to people. Interact the Q&As,
0: them. the clinics, the meet and greets. Yep. I came up with the idea of doing these meet and greets before the game with players after the game. I mean, you know, you got a 10, 12 year old kid meeting a player that just played in a, in a major league professional game. That's, he's never forgetting that. I run into yeah. kids now, I run into guys that are 30, 40 years old that I did that stuff for 20 years ago when they were 10. And they're like that that's that's like one of the highlights of my childhood. And that's what I live for. Like to create those moments for people and the wow factor, you know, when you get something that that's like wow I can't believe it. I can't believe that guy did that for us. Like that's well, what you live for. The other stuff all comes into play but when you do good work and you keep your customer in mind first and you know who your customer is, and all you're doing is trying to make them happy, the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. And that's what I felt like Steiner was, and that's what this new company I've created a collectible Exchange is. It's dealing with a whole series of other issues that customers have that I address. And it's not convenient, but I know it's a big help to them.
1: And well, that's how my
0: mind works when it comes to business. You know, that's know, I think about
1: it what are those issues that you're, that you're talking about? You know, like people getting something.
0: older, like they, 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 their, their views have changed There's like the stuff they've collected over the years, they don't want it anymore. What do you do with it? How do you get it authenticated stuff that you got along the way? Mm-hmm. How do I buy stuff and sells? How do I sell my stuff? How do I get my cards graded? You know, how do I sell my stuff so I can buy other stuff that made my grandkids and my children have, I'm downsizing. I'm getting older. I don't have this big house anymore. I'm moving to a small house. Can I warehouse my stuff? How do I sell my stuff? Um, experiential stuff that grandparents and parents could do with their kids is a huge factor. You know, yeah. things like that. You know, things uh-huh. things like that is what I'm addressing and having a ball doing it and uh you know, as long as I'm having fun doing what I'm doing, I'll keep doing it. If not, I'm definitely going home and I can, you know, hang out with all the other retired people. I don't have anything against retired if that's if that's what some people want to do. I'm well, not a retired from, guy. I'm gonna retire at New some York. point because the good Lord will take away that breath and say, Brandy, you're done but I still like what I'm doing. I'm still enjoying myself. I'm passionate about it. I'm growing, curious, um, and you're, I got my priorities straight about it.
1: You're from New York. You're practically legally required to come down here and retire, Brandon. Come on. Yeah, so it's you not happening. something. It's you not happen <laughs> you mentioned yet. something. But I respect you
0: it. You know, I love what you're doing and sharing the pod and, and doing this. I, I think you know the beautiful thing about getting older is is now's the time to get eleven year old like. Now's the time to go follow what you want to always do and and, and yeah. do if you if there's stuff you didn't get a chance to do. Now's the time to do it. And I think well, a lot of times re- people think getting older is about folding the tent up.
1: Uh-uh. Well, the the reason that I started doing the podcast is I, I I just became aware of all these people doing all this talking with no foundation to speak from. I was in the agent business for forty four years. Amazing. I met George. I, I met George Steinbrenner. I I I. Charlie Finley bought me drinks and tried to and hit on girls and gave me their phone numbers and things like that. I did that. Okay. I'm not just somebody who was a sports fan and now I'm opining on things. I was a fan of, I lived it. I lived it. I, I, you know, you know, so, so to me, you got it
0: done, you know, but, but the business you were in though, in all fairness, it's a freaking grind. Like,
1: Oh, no, you know, it's a toilet.
0: in that business, and, and, and that's, it's, it's just, I tell people, the agent business, which is why I never got into it, other than representing a few players here or there, but very little, it, it's a part it's of business you're going to find.
1: Oh, it's a toilet. It's an absolute <laughs> toilet. But talking so. about that side of it, I want to <laughs> ask you this. Um, so when did the Major League Baseball Players Association get involved in Taking note even of your business because I know what my perception of that was. I'd like to hear it from your side of the, the story. I
0: mean, it was very confusing, like when you talk about the MLBPA because we were paying the players. There was some licensing stuff that was going on and it's a little gray, but there really wasn't that much of a beep because the one thing that for sure is that the players were getting paid. The question is, were they going to be able to do a collaboration with all the players? to maybe do something on a bigger scale, which still to this day they haven't been able to figure out because not all players are created equal and nor are all players paid equally. As we know, like, Willie would always says, like, why is Mickey Mantle getting more money than me? I was a better player than he was. And you get into arguments like that uh, all the time with players. But The business doesn't always make sense. The best players and the biggest names don't always get paid the most based on their performance and statistics. But... Fandom is fandom, and it's, you know, why do people watch Channel 2 over Channel 4? I don't know. But um, I think the PA, you know, the PA, to me, you know, wanted to get some stuff going. I think they're more successful with the training cards and getting that business going and, and getting the players their fair share. I don't think there's a stronger Players Association than the MLB one. There's nobody who's done better for their players than the MLBPA. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, other than maybe right, 1A would be the NBA.
1: Yeah, the Players Association, it would have been because of what Marvin Miller did to begin with. And Should be an all fan. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Without and doubt. and um, uh, once Marvin left, there were a lot of things that, they decided were peripheral issues. There were players that did deals with shady promoters and either didn't get paid or didn't get paid what they had agreed to, or they wound up in situations where they were contracted to, to sign so many paint photos or cards or whatever the case may be. And then all of a sudden the promoters coming in and saying, here's an additional 50 cards I want you to sign for me personally next thing you know those 50 cards find their way onto the market competing with the same 500 cards that the guy had signed previously and I I think that what finally happened was there were enough complaints that players in that situation took to their agents and the agents took them to the association that it got to the point where the association couldn't ignore it anymore because they did ignore a lot of things they always felt they're. Their core business was negotiating the collective bargaining agreements with the owners and anything else was just secondary. But um it got to the point where they couldn't ignore it anymore and they finally had to pay some attention to it and started finally they set up a a marketing arm of the players association and that got some things going there. The the group agreements that you were mentioning where if more than what was it, two or three players Four signed players- four players signed something then all the players benefited from it it got paid into an account that essentially was used as a strike fund that you know if and when the collective bargaining agreement didn't didn't work out that this was money the licensing money that would be paid to players in the event of a of a work stoppage yeah and it, it's not so important anymore because of the amount of money that guys are making and are able to set aside for themselves but Back in the day, like in 94, when that long strike happened that I mentioned earlier, those guys were really sweating it. Even the guys back then that were at the top of the pay scale, they were really sweating it. And when the Players Association was able to come in and say, look, we've basically got 50 grand set aside for you guys. And once this goes on for so many days, we'll start distributing that money to you. Um, uh, a lot of those players breathe a lot easier. I can clearly remember being at that meeting in Orlando uh, with the the entire power structure of the union there. So, so that was very interesting. Well, Brandon, look, I don't want to take advantage of your goodwill and and keep you uh, too well, much. Well, thank longer you for remote. having me.
0: I appreciate it. It's been great talking with you, man. I feel like I have an opportunity to talk with a legend here. It's awesome. Oh,
1: come on, I, I forgot man. all. I come forgot on. all the good stuff
0: you've done, man. It's awesome.
1: Come, good for come you. Come on. Come on. Now you're going to make me say the same thing back to you because you're the real legend. All here, good. Brandon. Well, thanks you're for having me. I appreciate
0: legend. it. And listen, um, let's, let's catch up. And, uh, and now that I know I got a, a wise man down in Florida, if I have a couple of questions, I'll have to put you on that, i have to put you on the speed dial.
1: Well, actually we're moving, we're moving to Arizona.
0: Smart. Love Phoenix. Yeah. Now, ah, now you got my attention.
1: Yeah, we're moving to Arizona. I went to Arizona state. Um, I was going to transfer after my freshman year and I went. I did one of the the smartest things I've ever done in my life. I was going to transfer to Harvard, and I went there to summer school because when I went to Arizona State, I'd never been to Arizona. You could have gone to Harvard. There.
0: You went to Arizona State.
1: There's and a that's story. That's the smartest behind.
0: thing you ever did in your life.
1: Well, here here's the story. I know your I went parents to weren't
0: happy about that decision.
1: I, I I went to Arizona State my freshman year. Didn't love it. I decided I'm going to transfer to Harvard. Went to summer school at Harvard because I wanted to see what it was like. I was taking a full year's course over six weeks, and I was playing baseball in what's called the Park League in Boston. So I was so busy, I barely had time to eat. And it got to the point where I couldn't handle it anymore. And I left five weeks into a six-week course. And I, you know, went back and I said, what do I want to do? And I decided I wanted to go back to Arizona State. That's cool. That's cool. As Reggie luck would
0: Jackson, have it, were you well, there when
1: Reggie was there? Reggie was there before me. I started in 69, okay. but as, it, as luck would have it, it was the best thing that happened to me because my best friend was on the Arizona State baseball team. And I got to represent him when he signed and I was introduced to some other players and I was in a real serious car accident. And when I got out of the, the hospital, a buddy of mine who was on the basketball team got declared ineligible. Asked me if I could help him get into pro ball, and I said, "I've always been good at writing and speaking. I just started writing letters. I wrote letters to every team in the NBA, every team in the ABA. I got him a job with the Virginia Squires. He introduced me to a You're
0: a grinder, he, man.
1: He, he introduced me to you. another player. I got him a job with the Virginia Squires." Then, as I say, my roommate got drafted. Another roommate of mine got drafted. I'd gone out for the baseball team at Arizona State. I knew I wasn't going to make it for me. It was a fantasy camp that I didn't have to pay for. But nonetheless, I met guys like, you remember, Craig Swan on the Mets, Eddie Bain on the Twins, Jim Otten on the White Sox. All these guys were on this great Arizona State team, and several of them eventually became clients of mine when I became an agent. So that's why not going to Harvard – you know, All right, was, you, know, right.
0: What, you got me there. Okay, okay.
1: Were, were my parents happy about it? Absolutely not. My, as I mentioned, I my dad... want to make was, sure
0: that you know, we need this office to slip that by the listeners.
1: No, no, no. My, my dad was an immigrant, and it was his dream to go to Harvard, not mine. Thanks mm-hmm. for having
0: me. I appreciate it. Keep in touch. Be well. Stay safe. I will. I will. Look forward to, look forward to more talk. And that's it for another edition of Follow the Money Ball with your host, David Sloan. To make a comment or a suggestion for a future guest, reach out to David at followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.